0: 1 Peter chapter 1, we will be picking up. Um, I'm going to actually just do verse 13 again so we can kind of get where we're at. The context is Peter has risen to be kind of a central figure or one of the central figures in what they er- in the early days they called the way. Today we call them Christians, people that believe Jesus Christ was the Messiah. Um, they're at this point where 1 Peter's getting rid- written. Again, there's a lot of persecution persecution starting to pop up. It's been a little while and people are realizing that as people change their lives towards Christianity, there's whole town industries that are changing. Like in Ephesus, they stopped buying the little pewter action figures and that really got the business people upset because the whole pagan worship thing was an economy. And so when people start changing their life, it changes economies at that level, especially in mass. So there's persecution that's coming up versus one through five. The response to persecution, Peter says, is like focus on Jesus, his resurrection, what he's done. Verses 6 through 9, you also have your own experience and your faith that's developing. Focus on that. And as you're going through persecutions, verses 10 and 12, um, you also have the prophecies of God's word. Like know that you're part of a larger history. Like this is a big deal. And the prophets endured some persecution too. So these elements arm us for the spiritual trials. They equip us, they strengthen us, they get us ready to be soldiers and not fodder. When you become a believer, you actually enter a battleground. And Peter's attitude has has been like that. It was like that in Mark. It's like that in Peter. Um, So as you enter that battleground, this is kind of a joyful battle that we fight. We fight for people's souls. And so, happy Easter. This is a typical kind of resurrection thing, and we celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead. And the beginning of our warfare is a celebration of that he's risen. And just the joy of, of in being glad that Jesus rose from the dead becomes one of our primary weapons in that battle, to be joyful about something that's not ourself, right? And so, we consider the impact of that. Jesus is now revealed, then what happens? So in verse 13, Peter changes gears with the word, therefore, and says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is risen. And there's a joy that comes with that. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all your conduct because it's written be holy for I'm holy. So we could again, go through the resurrection. I like the fact that Peter goes on to like, okay, what do you do with the resurrection? The fact that Jesus is risen from the dead should change your life. And how will it change your life? And I would suggest he starts with this passage, be holy for I'm holy. But then he goes into like a note. He breaks it down into what it looks like. And I would suggest the end result of the Christian walk is holiness that you are set apart from the king. But I think there's steps in that. In fact, I know there are. Because as somebody first gets saved, they're usually far from holy. But holy becomes that target you're going for. And what Peter does, I think, is in reverse order, he breaks down that process. So he starts with holiness, and then he says, to get there, here's the next thing. And here's the thing before it. And, And when we look at this, we see a progression of a typical spiritual life, from immaturity to maturity, and he ends talking about baby's milk. Right? So there is this process of moving from being a spiritual baby, not ready for the battleground, to being a holy warrior ready to kick buck for the Lord. And so verse 17 says, if you call the Father, and if you call on the Father, that would be praying, with a, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. Well, that's an interesting perspective. God's holy, so we should be thinking about the God that we pray to. When we pray to Jesus and we ask him for things, we're praying to a holy God and a certain awareness that he observes our conduct as we go through life and our stay here. And Peter often uses that theme that we're just pilgrims, we're sojourners, this isn't our home. But as we're staying here on earth for our very short lifetimes, know that God judges how we act and how we behave. And for some that's terrifying and for some that's wonderful that we know that every little thing that we do gets seen by our God. And Peter's thing is you should conduct yourselves with that fear, right? And that you know that everything you do that isn't holy gets observed by God. You're doing it in his face because he's everywhere. So holy work includes the endeavor or the effort or the goals of your life, not just when it says each one's work, that doesn't just mean your job. The use of that term means everything in your life, that that your life is a work work, That's being done like the term a work of art. So the work of your life would be everything that you do, how you set yourself up, how you, how you, what you pine for, what you work for, what you save up for. All of that is part of what God looks at is your life more than just your employment but you're doing something with your life that's composing something or doing something wonderful. Verse 18 says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. See, I told you this was an Easter message. The, the God that saved you did it with the blood of a perfect soul. The lamb that was slain for your life was bought with a price, and that price is precious. This is an interesting thing when you think about our conduct and how we do things. So our life work in verse 17, but our conduct is under question in this. If you want your life work to be something wonderful, then going back a step, your conduct has to be different because of who you are in Christ. So in that sense... We're saved in such a way so that we can be doing something for our Lord. We're not saved to keep going back to corruptible things and pining for those things that aren't helping us. And, and the word Peter uses here is aimless conduct, worthless or devoid of force. It's useless conduct. It's, he doesn't say evil conduct. He just says aimless conduct, doing things that have no purpose, have no point. And that's a pretty broad category. Things he, he specifies received by tradition. So tradition isn't bad in and of itself, but when the tradition is why you're doing it, it's because that's how you were raised. That's the culture you were brought up in. Things you were taught is things that are by tradition, things that you've been given by others. So we definitely live in a culture that tells us how to live and how to do things. But we don't do things because we've been taught to do that by our culture or by our parents. We do things because we've chosen to do them to be separated or holy for God. And the word holy means separated, means consecrated, set apart, something different. Whereas we talked about last week, it means, you know, not horrible or not, you know, doing things that just aren't like rotten to the core. So the opposite then of aimed conduct would be intentional or purposed conduct. And that's what God wants for us. May our conduct be something we choose. And our conduct doesn't always hit the mark, but God expects us to aim for the mark. I hope that makes some sense. Like, we're not perfect people, and we know that, and we give each other grace in that. But we are trying for something that's better than who we are in the flesh. So there's nothing worse, I think, than a purified saint who continues to walk around in garbage. Like, get away from it. We're redeemed with... As Peter says, the precious blood of Christ. It wasn't cheap. It wasn't trivial. You were precious to God. Without blemish. Jesus lived without sin as a model for us to attempt to do the same. That's the whole point. So holy conduct has something to do with our work and how we live. It has something to do with our holy conduct as how we act as we go through life. What do other people see when they interact with us? And then I think your conduct isn't, you can't just wake up in the morning and say, I want my life to be a work for God. And you also can't wake up in the morning and say, I want my conduct to be perfect. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but a lot of times we say and do things we don't mean to say and do. And in doing that, we're not perfect in our conduct either. So faith and hope become kind of the next. In order for our conduct to change, our faith and our hope has to change and where we put those things. Verse 20 says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. There's a purpose to Jesus' resurrection. It's there so we can redirect where we put our faith, what we trust in, and where we put our hope, what we aspire or hope happens next. So the manifestation of Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy from the foundation of the world, actually before the foundation of the world. Peter's point here is that this was all planned. It was perfectly planned and ordered. And and at the end of verse 20, for you, plan A was done for us to see how God wanted to interact with humanity. And when he says you here, he's talking to the church. Remember the very beginning, he was addressing a number of churches. So the churches that he was aware of, And the idea of Jesus' resurrection changing our faith and our hope has to do with the idea that we are doing that so in God. We don't have hope for a better job, but we like when we get them. Our hope is in God in the process of going through that sort of thing. We don't put our hope or our faith in other people, but we, we want those people in our life and we love and adore them. But our true faith is in God, not in other people. The resurrection of Jesus becomes front and center of how we live our lives. If we want a good work, we need good conduct to make that happen. If we want good conduct, we need to have faith and hope put in the right place. And that is to have those things in God. So as he's good and holy, we want to be good and holy too. So we want our conduct to be good and holy. And to do that, where we get our life has to be in God and nowhere else. So where do you invest your hope? Where do you put your trust? How do you realign those things? And I would venture to say it's really hard to realign those things. It is hard to say to put your hope into the things of God instead of the things of this world. Like even just when your favorite TV show is coming up with the next episode, we actually put a little bit of our hope and, oh, I can't wait for that next TV show to show up. It's, it's there and it's natural to do that. But I think in order for us to shift our faith and hope, we have to do what's in verse 22. We have to change what we love. And verse, verse 22 says, since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. So Peter, again, is just, he's walking through this process since you have been. So faith and hope is because of, or the first word of 22, it's since. Since you have the fervent love, the faith and hope can happen. And so again, there's this process here. So, and and I would point out, we've talked about this before, um, the target for a purified soul is the sincere love of the brethren. And by the brethren, he means the church. This is a practice ground. And we have a a family Bible study and we get together and in a family, you have a place to practice your fervent love. And how do we love one another? I think you do those things that the Lord puts on your heart uh, for the people that you love and you get along with. And as you are in a body of Christ and you're in a church with people that are different than you, you find ways to love on them and you take care of them. And it's practice for doing that. So you start to get anticipation about, oh, you thought of this great thing to do. You call a brother and, hey, can you help me get this great thing done? Sure. And suddenly your faith and hope are switching places. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy some syrup and I'm going to hand it out to people at work. And I'm going to do that. Grant, can you get me some help with that syrup? And you do. That. And there's an excitement around doing that. And it's natural. And it's amazing how God puts the thought in your heart to do that thing that is loving. And then you start planning for it and doing it. And lo and behold, your hope is that you can't wait to see how people react to that gift, that wonderful thing you want to do. And, and there is just, it is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives you an idea on how to be nice or kind. You think, I'm going to bring that junk food donut box to the church so that people are going to have some, some sweet donuts as they're eating. And it's just a blessing to the people there. And then the people in the church, especially the new believers, see all these good works being done that are composing a new kind of faith or hope in our heart. But they're just like, dang, these people are so kind to each other. And the Bible says you will know them by their love. Part of how we distinguish ourselves in the world is not as individuals, but as a body of people that love one another. And then we tell people about what's going on and how people have been kind to us. And that's a ministry or a way to speak to people about what's going on. We're not arguing a theology with them. We're just telling them what's happening in the body. And they're like, why are you people so crazy in love with each other? The reason Paul gives is, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, insincere love of the brethren, because we just pay attention to the spirit and the spirit wants to just shower blessings on believers in the church. And in doing that, we practice for a world where we can put our faith and hope in Christ and tell people about our faith and hope. Our conduct is then different outside the church, which builds up to a work, a life work, where we become believers that have just done a life work. It's unmistakable to see this calling in people's life, but to be nice to each other is just the first step or one of the first steps, just be kind to people. What can I do to serve the church? Look around, find a need and meet it. And then you start to have eyes that see differently because you're looking for what people need in their lives. And the holiness then, for holiness to happen, part of that is, and I love this phrase, love one another fervently. The fervently there is to exert great effort on this point. Okay, what do I do for the kingdom? I love Jesus. Okay, passionately try to find ways to love other people. Practice it. Make it a habit. Pay attention and tune into it. Well, yeah, but I got I to gotta fix me. I got to work on me for a while. That's a very modern phrase. I need to work on me. It's also a lie. Biblically, you're supposed to fervently love the brethren, And it's far more effective psychologically. When you're focused on you, you'll tend to get depressed because there's not much you there. When you're focused on others too much, you'll get angry because they'll let you down. But when you focus on loving other people fervently, it actually not only do you do it because your heart has been purified, you're capable of thinking of how to love on other people, but you do it with a pure heart. And that's the thing you do where you know you're not sinning when you're loving on other people you're starting to practice holiness. And you don't do it for selfish gain. It's not romantic love. It's not just to do it to get attention because you want other people to see what you're doing. You do it in private. You do it quietly. You do it in pure love where you're not doing anything for yourself. And in those moments, you start to realize, boy, this feels great. And that joy leads to, okay, I know, Lord, you're going to show me the next thing to do. And I hope that I'm going to have, I'm going to enjoy the next thing even more than this last thing. So your faith and hope change directions and that changes your conduct. It just shifts who you are. And then when your conduct changes, your work becomes something different as a life work. And then you get back to the first thing. How do I get the fervent love? So new believers are like, yeah, but I don't love other people. Let's be honest. I love myself. I love myself a lot. I love myself so much. I accepted Jesus so I could go to heaven. Right. It's If you think about it, salvation is a fairly self-serving act, which is good. That's all right. For me to start to like turn my attention to other people, I think it's interesting how Paul sets this up. He says, through the word, and the word there is logos, the written word of God, your Bible, that scripture that we've been given. And I know we put a lot of attention on the scripture, but so does Peter. If I want love, faith, hope, conduct, and works... That happens through the word of God, which lives and abides forever because all flesh is grass, verse 24, and all the glory of man has the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, it falls away. But the word, and he changes there, that's Rima of the Lord endures forever. And he's quoting Isaiah 40, verse eight. Now, this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. It's interesting how he switches from logos to Rima Logos would be kind of that written kind of word-by-word thing, but rima is more of like what you've heard, the word that you've heard from people, not a specific sentence made up of little words, but the idea of like there's an entire thing that's been given to you, and that's why he says the word which was by the gospel was preached to you. It's what you've heard and it's what you've read. That's the word of God. Holiness then is, the word is through the word. This seems weird. You'd think we could just think hard and focus hard, and we could become different people if we just tried hard enough. But that's the message of the flesh. That's the message of the world. Be you. Just you be you. Now, I don't want to be me. I'd like to be holy. I'd like to be set apart. So both the written and spoken word of God, I want to read it and I want to hear it being taught, teaches me how to love other people. Peter says the word through there. This happens, this love for others happens as we hear what God says to us. And I think when he talks about the good news or the gospel that was preached, the good news is really simple. God loves you. And so we see that idea of like, because God loved me, I'm going to love others. And the essential message of the word of God is God's love for humanity and for you as an individual. If I'm loved and I love my God and I get to know my God better, it makes me want to share my love with other people. I want to do nice things. And so you feel the maturity grow up through that. This idea that the Word of God lives, this is great. Peter uses that language. The Word of God lives. In other words, it has an active life. The Word of God's not just a book that sits on a shelf and collects dust and we read it every Easter. That's not what the Word of God is for. The Word of God actually is active. It's called sharp, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's a weapon that we use in spiritual battles. It's unique to every reader that hears it. I'm week by week fascinated by the fact that I can teach a chapter and I'm thinking certain things about what I'm reading in the chapter, but we get done and talk about it, and you all have totally different things going on in your head because God works through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. The word abide there is to be settled in with contentment. So when we're first saved, we don't know the whole book, right? But as we, the, every week by week, as we go through the scriptures and it becomes part of how you think and who you are, it changes you. It's the only book in the history of the world that changes people. And that abiding is that it is settled into humanity and it's comfortable there. It likes living among humanity. And there's been efforts to destroy the Bible, right? Multiple efforts in history. When nations try to destroy the Bible, I give them about 40 years of existing on the planet. Like it tends to be that the nation gets destroyed, not the book. Isn't that crazy? Like, God protects his scriptures. It says, all flesh is grass. Even Peter understands this. There's no empire. Not even Rome can destroy God's word, right? Germany couldn't destroy God's people. Rome couldn't destroy the word. And communism couldn't get rid of it. Communism in Russia fell before the word of God fell. It's interesting to see how that works. And there's examples, and you're like, oh, but there's nations on earth today that are outlawing the word, and they're outlawing Christianity. Yeah, how long are they going to last? What kind of blessings do they have? Like, give it time because it withers too. And I guarantee that at the end of days, all those nations will fall and the thing that will remain will be the word of God. Not, that's not me saying that. That's Peter saying that. That's the entire scripture saying that. Right? There's just this idea that when flesh, that flesh is a grass, it's because it fades away every year. Like, it's spring right now, but that grass isn't green yet because last year's grass faded away. Last year's nations will fade away too. Last year's empires will fade away too, but the Word of God lists forever. What's missing from this list, right? So we want to be holy. If we want to be holy, we're in the Word so that we develop fervent love, we develop hope and faith that affects our conduct and ultimately the work of our life. Pretty cool list, right? What's missing from that list? There's lots of good things that are part of the walk of Christ that are not part of that maturity process that Peter paints. I'll give you just a few. There's no use of, there's no miracles required for growth, for the word of God to abide in your heart. You don't need miracles to happen for that, though it is kind of a miracle. There's no evangelism on this list. There's no tongues or speaking in tongues on the list. Worship is not on this list. Self-care I've already talked about is not on this list. Study time is not on this list. I'm just listing a lot of good things that Peter does not include as part of this process. Downtime is not on this list, right? Rest isn't on this list. So part of the Christian walk here is we should note there's a lot of good things that we think are good works, but they're not noted in Peter's description of how to be holy. You don't need works and you don't need miracles and you don't need to do anything special to be holy. What you need, and I think this is, for me, this is relieving. It takes a lot of weight off my shoulders that I can let, I can take up Jesus's yoke and the burden is easy. It's pretty light. And I'm blessed at every one of these steps. When I'm in the Word, I'm still fascinated how about studying the Word of God actually makes me feel better. I'm blessed by that. When I love other people with a fervent love and I build those relationships stronger, I'm blessed by that. When I develop hope and faith and I put it in the Lord and I change where my hope and faith are, I'm putting my hope and faith in things that actually pay off versus my hope and faith in things that fade. And then my conduct change and I I get rid of shame. Isn't it nice when your conduct changes and you just don't have to live feeling bad about what you did all the time? What a relief. And then you start doing a work of life and you're like, okay, I got a mission now. God shows you something to do. And so I love the fact that if we're in the word and we do fervent love and we have hope and faith, it affects our conduct, it gives us our work life, that can be it. That's that's the process towards holiness. It's actually changing our heart and Peter shows us how to do it. Like that's good news. That itself is good news that can be the gospel preached. You don't have to be anything different than who you are in Christ and that is sufficient for God love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And that's it. That's the greatest of the commandments. Everything else is dressing. Everything else we do in the kingdom, everything we else we do for ministry, all of that should be on top of our relationship with Jesus Christ and what he's doing in our life to produce holiness in our walk and in our conduct. And, and for me, that What an amazing message. What an amazing thing for Peter to say to the church. Just abide in Christ. And it starts with just learning the word. You don't have to do anything else. Let God do those steps naturally over time. Let it produce in you a different person. Watch what he does. And he's talking to the church here. He's talking to believers. Verse 25 says, But the word of the Lord endures forever. You're going to wither but this word will last longer than you. It's going to remain till the end of time. And in Christ, you will eternally be there for the end all of t- time too. But your works on this earth are, as Peter says, just a short thing, just a, a withering grass. So no matter what, there's always an available word. And I just love this. What a peace. God has a plan for you to grow. Word, love, hope, faith, conduct, life. And he set that in place from the beginning of the foundation of the world. This is how human beings grow. This is how you were made. It's the manual on your life. It's natural. And all it requires is your heart. And I think that heart starts with faithfulness and hearing the word every week. Being in, being in the scriptures and praying and talking to the Lord. So how can this be enough? Can this be everything there is? And the good news is, yep, That's it because Jesus did the rest of the work on the cross and he took all your sins and he took care of them. So the only thing left for us is to seek holiness and to do it out of response for the love of Jesus Christ because we love our king. And because he's holy, we also try to be holy. And we fail and we fall short and God says, get up and keep working on it tomorrow. Try to be holy. A key part of our battle then is contentment. If the word of God endures forever, we should say, is it enough for us to just live and abide back with Christ? Is that relationship sufficient in our life to be content with the simplicity of this whole thing? It is that simple. But something about human nature is we are, our complex, anxious, self-willed, stressful way of life messes with the simplicity of what God has for us. We always are looking for something else. Yet the Bible says to let go and let Jesus. And just let him have his way. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Jesus rose. He welcomed us into his kingdom. And that's good news. That is the good news. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And to abide in that, that that's the real thing. It's basic. It's simple. And you you know what? It's enough. It's all we need. So we to be holy, we do what's been laid out, and we strive to grow in faith, hope, and love unto a holy life and a holy work. And each step gets better than the last. Each one is giving you feedback in your heart that you're ready to take the next one to. So wherever you're at on that journey, abide in it. Live in it. Do it. And what a gracious thing that is. Going to chapter 2, Peter gives a therefore therefore because of this process because of how simple this is lay aside all malice all deceit all hypocrisy um oh i think i cut off my verse can somebody read through chapter three for me actually i can yeah i just for some reason i deleted my verse amen remind me not to go deleting things so therefore peter's shown how holiness looks like in our life in light of that we lay aside so there's an idea when you lay something aside it is to put something out as trash to put it away put some things down so there's an idea that we submit to god's law and that is part of the walk of christ the idea of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy, malice is to lay aside your ill will towards other people. And a lot of people, when they first start following the Lord and say, I want to follow you, Lord, there are people, because we live in this world of sin, there are people that you hate. (laughs) You're just angry with them. And the Bible calls that malice. But then you ask yourself, what good is my malice doing me? And when I'm in the word and Paul, you know, Peter says that like being in the word helps us deal with these things. But if we submit to or lay aside malice, we have to basically let it go. And that's to let it go for real. Because you can say, okay, I let it go. And and you pretend to let it go. But there is something where abiding in the word of God actually does help you let it go. In time, you realize, oh, first of all, God's perfectly just. He will deal with it. So maybe they did something wrong. It was actually wrong. It was pretty evil. Well, God's going to deal with that evil. It won't go undealt with. And the more I get to know God through the word, the more I understand I don't have to have malice. I can just let it go. All deceit. Capture your tongue, folks. All of it. When you go through a day, and I remember when I first got saved, I I was thinking, like, I go through a day, I probably was exaggerating, understating things, trying to say things a little differently to get people to like me more or to impress my boss. But to just be truthful in your day, To get rid of all deceit and capture your tongue, well, yeah, that's hard to do, right? Every word that comes out of my mouth is just truthful and not brutal truth where you hurt people's feelings, but just truth, truth, you know? And then hypocrisy, don't act. I think for a lot of young believers, this is a tough one too. We try to put on a face for some people to impress them or to manipulate their opinion, right? So when we deal with this person, we act differently than with that person. And Peter says, lay that aside. Stop doing that. Just be honest. And I think as a church, we have to be aware of this. When we have newer believers that are just starting their walk, they might tell us some things or act in a certain way that makes us cringe because it's not very holy. But we still have some grace because they're trying to get rid of hypocrisy. Good start. Just be honest. We can't pray for getting certain sins out of your life if we don't know what the sins are. So that's why we, sometimes we have men's Bible study. Sometimes we have women's Bible study. Some of those things you want to share in smaller. You don't want to announce it to the whole body, right? But you find discipleship partners or what I would call brothers and sisters in Christ. And you tell them the truth with no deceit. You don't put on an act. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. When you're not. So to tell people how you, to just be honest with things, and again, to not put on an act doesn't mean you lay every issue at everybody's feet every chance you get, because that's a form of getting attention too. You're just telling people how bad everything is. Envy, stop thirsting after what other people have. That doesn't help you. That doesn't help you get to holiness. Say, Lord, okay, I'm, what you've given me right now is what I've been provided. It's what you think I can be responsible for. So I'm gonna be responsible for the things that you've given me in my life. And I'm going to be faithful in those things. I'm going to take care of what you've given me. And that that might be a tent in the backyard, but I'm going to take care of that tent, Lord. And I'm going to treat it in such a way, and the things that are in my life, and I'm going to treat those things with, with respect and order and honor and keep those things it's going to be the best cared for tent on this planet. Darn it. And so you take care of things. And and when you take care of your own things, you stop envying what other people have because you start to realize, like Solomon saw, the more stuff you have, the more you have to take care of stuff. That's a burden. That's not a good thing. And we also know that that money and riches are one of the toughest barriers for people to come into the kingdom. The more stuff you have, the more busy you are caring for it. The more stuff you have, the more you put your faith and hope in the stuff versus Christ and, and, and walking for Jesus. So there's those kinds of things. When you start reading the word of God, you understand those truths. It's a lot easier to lay aside envy. It's a lot easier to lay aside deceit and malice. All evil speaking, the word there, (laughs) katalalia, is I think almost like an onomatopoeia. It's kalalalia. It means murmuring or gossiping. So you stop evil speaking. It's a catch-all for any word that comes out of your mouth that is speaking other people down like You try to pronounce that in the Greek. To speak ill ill of any person or thing. Lay it aside. But what if it's true? But it's not about you. You don't need to say it. right? There's no hypocrisy in not saying bad things about other people. Discouragement, flaws, failings, faults. There are so many bad things we could say about other people at any given moment. Yet as a believer, when we focus on the Word of God and we focus on our own walk, and our own holiness, we stop thinking ill of other people. So easy to do. And in the church, this is one of the, I, honestly, the hypocrisy, the envy, and the evil speaking is one of the things that keeps non-believers away from the church, period. They see the hypocrisy, they want nothing to do with it. They hear the gossip, they want to just stay away from it. Because they want something holy, holy. They want something set apart and consecrated and different. And to do that, they have to see something different when they look at a church. Like people fervently loving each other. That draws people into the church. I want to be in a place where I can just be accepted and loved. Not not where the person can be accepted and loved. We, We use that term right now. And the church is mistaken that accepting of sin is the same thing as accepting the person. Right? The point isn't to say, oh, we're going to do all sin here in the church. That's not the kind of accepting I'm talking about. But saying we love you and we want you to be part of the body so that we can hear the word, fervently love one another, change our faith and hope so that our conduct is holy, so that our life can be a holy work unto God. That's acceptance that I'm talking about. Come on in and join the fun. But if the church isn't having any fun, what's to join? So verse two, it talks about newborn babes. <laughs> when Paul talks about babes and drinking milk, he's actually rebuking the church. Like you guys have been drinking the milk now for a long time, remember that? And he, so he rebukes the church and, and, and that they shouldn't always be drinking the milk. But I think part of that might be a response to Peter. Peter's saying, you know what? There's a growth process here. You need to drink the milk. So, and, and this idea that milk is good for babies but it helps the baby grow. But the point is later on in maturity, you need to be moving past those things, which is why I think this is in reverse order. You start with the word of God, the milk, but if you want to be holy, you need to start moving on to fervently loving people at some point. There is a growth process here. And so we do that. That that said, even as adults, we drink the milk, you know, but it's not the only thing that's part of our diet. As we get older, there are more and more things in the faith that become part of our diet. Here, Peter says to desire the pure milk. We live in an era where we can grow if we want to. And we do that in seeking the word of God. It's food for us. It's natural and perfect for us to do that. Amos 8.11 says, Behold, the days are coming. This is prophecy. Says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And I think this is something that, like, we, we've experienced a lot of this. There is a point where you find a place that just teaches the scriptures, right? And it's not about going in and hearing, like, a thousand stories about my life. Honestly, you all know me. It's not that flashy of a life, right? It's not about coming in and hearing catchy stories about things. It's not about getting a life lesson. It's about actually going through the scripture and hearing it. And so there is a point where we desire the pure milk, which is, I just want the word, thank you. I don't want everything else. And you really just get tired of churches that don't do that. So this is a good habit that draws us in. We desire it because it actually has an effect on our heart. I desire things that I like. I desire to have a Coca-Cola now and then because I like the sting as it goes down my throat. In the same way, I like to hear the word of God every now and then, because I like what it does to my soul. I like the conviction of it. I like how it points out wrongs in my life. I like how somehow or another, whenever I open this book and read it, it applies to my day that I'm having. Like, I don't know if you've experienced that, but you can't go very far in the word before it speaks to you. It's alive. So as believers, we're drawn in by it. That said, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, we don't dwell on it forever. At some point, you gotta. the reading has to be part of a larger spiritual diet. So babies hear the word. It's good for them. It's even tasty. They get a desire for it. But for God and Peter's desire in this is so that the baby can grow into an adult. And that growth is what he talked about back in chapter one. The word is about God. It's about Jesus and it's about you. So it shouldn't be hard that to engage in. It's about the most important things in our lives. And I think sometimes one of the things the enemy uses or the world uses is that we'll talk about anything but the most important things in our lives. When you talk to non-believers, they're happy to talk about sports with you. You can talk about the weather for an hour. You talk about the news for five hours. But boy, you want to start talking about Jesus and they want to cut that stuff off. And so anyone who can just hear the word of God, they've already come to a place in their heart where they're ready to talk about the most important things in their life. What's going to happen to you after you died? What does it mean that Jesus rose from the dead? And that's what Peter starts to address. If indeed you have tasted, I think after hearing and submitting to God's word for a season, God does something to you spiritually and you start to see God at work in your life via the blessings that he gives in your life. For starters, your heart starts to feel healthy again. You're not a a person that's laid in bed for three years trying to run a marathon. You actually wake up in the morning and there's something spiritual where you feel like you're you're getting that exercise you need spiritually. You stop thinking this world is all there is and you start recognizing the spiritual parts of your life. That awakening is like a baby going, I don't remember anything before age five as a baby because our brains aren't developed. And if Peter's talking about being born again, there are spiritual parts of our brain that just aren't born yet when we first get saved. And part of that is you, you wake up, you start to have spiritual memory. You start to have spiritual experiences just like a baby growing into adolescence. And you start to remember those things. So starting to recognize God at work in the world is part of like having your eyes opened. And Paul even talks about, like, I used to just look through the world through a glass that was smoky and dim, and now I see the world clearly. And there's a clarity that comes to it, a lack of confusion that comes through the learning of the word. And then it says the Lord is gracious in verse 3. He actually expects the baby to grow up, but he's also gracious. Grace is to give something to a person that they don't deserve. Mercy is to not punish them, but grace is to actually give them something. And as somebody submitting to the word of God, the Lord is gracious in that in that he's watching you grow and he's going to continue to give you blessings to encourage you to go the right way. And those blessings will evaporate when you start going the wrong way. And what he's doing is he's conditioning us. It's called discipline. It's actually good. The word disciple comes from the same word of discipline. Sometimes he puts somebody in our life that says, nope, that's not right. And yep, that's the right way to go. And we get discipled by our brothers and sisters in the faith because we learn from those things. So we have the church. We have the word of God. We have God's blessings in our life. Those are some powerful tools. Why do we do all this? Because Jesus rose from the dead because he's holy and he wants us to be holy. So then he, he is the stone, and, the, and Peter comes right back to it in verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. That's you. You also, as living stones, are being built up to a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I hate to even go through this because it's just so well written. It's perfect. That's it. Jesus was the cornerstone. He's the rejected cornerstone, Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20. Jesus said so. He said he was the cornerstone. And Jesus is chosen and precious. God doesn't make mistakes. You're chosen and precious. He doesn't make mistakes with you. He actually has a plan for your life. There is someone out there that he's prepping you to share the gospel with. Maybe there's many people out there he's prepping you for. And being built up, it's interesting, we don't have to do the building. Notice how he phrases that in verse 5. We're living stones are being built up. God's building us into something. We don't build ourselves into something. And God's doing a work. So we bring our lives as a sacrifice for that work in the same way that the ancient Jews brought their animals to the temple as a sacrifice for the work of the temple. And Peter uses this language, spiritual house, holy priesthood, spiritual sacrifice. He's mirroring everything that the Jews did so that there was a memory in world history of what this looks like. So the Jewish people mirror the spiritual walk. Um, There is a temple that's being built. It's the church. God's building a house using living living stones. The church is a spiritual house, not a physical one. We're in it as a holy priesthood, not a Levitical priesthood. And priests are set aside and consecrated. The word holy there is a set-apart priesthood. Held to a higher standard. There's no other mediators. Now that Jesus is our mediator, we don't need human priests anymore. We're the priesthood. We go straight to God with our concerns. There's a spiritual temple, spiritual people, and spiritual sacrifices. That means we don't actually kill animals and put them um, on an altar anymore. But we do give parts of our life. We take things in our life that are a roadblock and we offer them up to the Lord. We take the best part of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength and we give it to God. He gets first dibs, spiritual sacrifice. Our life then becomes that same kind of in nature, becomes the same sacrifice that Judaism did when they took the first fruits of their crops and the first pickings of their herds and they gave them over to the Lord. We do the same thing. A stone, even a living stone, doesn't do much on its own. It just sits there. But when there's a builder that can pick that stone up and move it, when there's a Holy Spirit mortar that can tie it together with other stones, it is the fellowships between us that start to build a spiritual house. And I think that's important. We move forward as a group. Peter doesn't call himself the cornerstone. I want to point that out. He's calling Jesus the cornerstone, meaning he's just one of the blocks like us. He's a blockhead like we are. We don't do much on our own, but when we're tied together as a kingdom, we can do great things. Where's the Lord leading us? Peter's not, it's interesting that Peter refrains from any direct instruction to these churches here. He's telling them to go and look to Jesus for how to guide and run their churches. So on this point, and this is key, Peter cites three Old Testament passages, saying God planned this. Verse um, and, and you know go to verse uh, chapter one, verse twenty. Same idea. So it's uncommon for Peter to cite Scripture. <laughs> when we read through Peter, we read through Mark. We haven't seen him citing a lot of Scripture like Matthew does. So when we see Peter citing Scripture, we should pay attention. These are the couple verses he would learn and preach with that meant a lot to him. And so he cites from all over the place, but he loves Isaiah. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Isaiah 28, 16. Verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, precious, but those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Psalm 118.22. And, verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah 8.14. They stumble being disobedient in the word to which they were appointed. This is So, p- putting all this together, Peter isn't inventing these ideas. His point here is, I'm not making this up. And he's just preaching the word of God to people in his own words. Jesus is a cornerstone. The cornerstone is rejected and it can be accepted or it can be a stumbling block to people. And so as always with God, either you love God in your life or God is terrifying in your life. And it has everything to do with the sin that's in your life. If there's too much sin, God becomes scarier and scarier and that's okay. He should be scary. That fear should keep you away from sin. As you get more and more holy, Jesus and and God becomes more and more welcomed in your life because you see what he's doing in your life. So Jesus is the stone that shatters kingdoms in Daniel 2. He bypasses this world. Jesus is the stone in the wilderness that pours out living water, 1 Corinthians 10.4. And did they all drink from the same spiritual drink for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Like they're seeing these Old Testament physical, actual images and they're saying, okay, these were all things to teach us how it works to live with the Lord. When Moses struck that rock, supposed to strike it once. God got upset with him when he struck it more than one time because God's trying to set up an image that'll be recorded in his word. So God makes it work because he's God. But at the same token, Jesus was struck once and forevermore living water pours out of the story of Jesus Christ. His resurrection feeds us. Jesus is a stone either way. He's solid. He's unmoving. It's we humans that decide whether or not he's a stumbling block or whether or not he's part of the foundation of our church. He's precious. I just When Peter says the word precious here, I just think, you know, to what degree is Jesus precious to me? When I hear of his resurrection, when I say he's risen, is there something that stirs in my heart? Am I just saying that on an automatic basis? Or am I saying it because Jesus is actually precious in my life? He actually makes the difference. Are we proud of Jesus? Do we want to showcase? When something's precious to me, I put it like on display. When something's precious to me, I want to make sure it's taken care of. You know, if it gets a little dust on it, I want to dust it off. You know, if it's precious to me, I want it to be ready to show to people. I want other people to be excited about things I'm excited about. So if something's precious to me and I show it to other people, I want them to be excited about it too. When something's precious to me, it often doesn't have a price. So having that precious thing means I'm going to keep it whether or not, no matter what it's worth in this world, it's something I want to keep because it's precious to me. And this isn't Gollum's ring precious. This is the, the thing we should think is precious in our life, which is the Lord. Does God weigh more than everything else that would then be less precious to us? This is a good measure. Wow, should I keep doing this thing in my life because I like it? Well, ask yourself that question. Is it more precious to you than Jesus? If yes, a fast from that thing might be okay. Let's get our thoughts in order based on what the word word tells us is the most precious thing. But if you can honestly say, oh no, Jesus in my spiritual walk is more precious to me than that entertainment. Well, then maybe you don't need to fast from it. Maybe it's not taking that place. One can know Jesus and one knows what it's like to not follow Jesus And to follow Jesus is to pay attention to the word. To not follow Jesus is to ignore the word. To which they were appointed. God has called everyone, but not everybody comes. Right? So this is, Peter's talking about this as though some people see Jesus is precious and some people don't. Verses 7 and 8, he's really making the point that Jesus is the rock that doesn't move. And for some people, he's precious. And for some people, he's just a stumbling block. It's just an annoying tripping point in their life. Right? And so when we deal with non-believers, we should understand when we bring up the name of Jesus, that's just a tripping point for them. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to hear about that there's an accountability for sin. That's a tough discussion to have with people. Matthew 22 verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who are invited, they're not worthy, the Jewish people. They didn't keep it up like they should have. The priesthood got corrupt. Therefore, go into the highways, as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So that invitation goes out to everybody. Everybody's appointed to come to the wedding. So don't get tripped. Don't let that be a stumbling block to you. Well, God only picks some people and not others. Not true. Consistently in the Bible, God invites everyone to come to the feast. So those servants went out into the highways. They gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. Like they didn't judge them. They didn't care. Come to the wedding. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on the wedding garment. Here's the thing with wedding garments. In ancient weddings, you would be given a wedding garment to come to the wedding. So everybody would have the same gear. And there there wouldn't be partiality between people. So it would be a real odd thing to come to a wedding and not put on the garment that was given to you to put on. Like, that's kind of presumptuous. So he was speechless. And then he said, the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into utter darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This guy's going to miss the wedding. He doesn't belong here. He doesn't even want to put on holiness. Doesn't even want to try to do it. So, Jesus explains it here that, that there is a, a group of people that God initially entrusted the word with, the Jews. They fail, so God invites the Gentiles. He invites everybody. But even among the Gentiles, there's going to be people that show up at the wedding on their own terms, they won't be welcomed. And then there's people that show up and God said, be holy because I'm holy. There's going to be people that show up ready to go. They put on the garment. They got the bride of Christ. They've been following through the word of God what he tells us to do in our life and fervently loving the church that have faith and hope put in God whose conduct is amendable. It's not that we're saved by our works, but we should be aiming for the target. Both rejectors of Jesus and the ones that come on their own terms are going to be cast out. They're not going to be at the wedding. Some people will be at the wedding because they chose not to be there. Some people won't be at the wedding because they got kicked out. They thought they were going to the wedding, but when they get there, they haven't done the things God's asked them to do. They didn't even make an effort at it. They didn't even shoot for the target. So sin is, when you look at the word, is actually a missing of the target. But the aiming is something we have full control over. You actually have people not aiming for purity in their life. Well, that's not going to go well when you get to the wedding feast. Verse 9, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may be proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a song in there somewhere who once were not a people, but now are the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Think of this in terms of like Paul's addressing this. You're going through trials and tribulations and in the spirit you're giving up. So he starts in chapter one with here's how you deal with those trials and tribulations. But he's actually like that idea of giving up. It seems like he's switching over into a life of holiness versus sin. Which are you going to be? But you're a chosen generation. That's not a biological generation. It's being used in the sense of this era of history, this church era. The church area is chosen. That should be elevated and precious amongst the church. It's a period of God's dispensation of grace and salvation to everybody. It's the church age. It's when God sends his servants out to invite everybody to come to the wedding. So that's part of what we're here to do, too. So there's a royal priesthood. He connects royalty with priesthood. In the Jewish tradition, royalty and priesthood are separated very clearly. There were prophets and there were kings, and they were not the same, right? And even kings got punished for pretending to be priests. And priests got punished when they started to pretend they were kings. So there's a holy nation here. In terms of the kingdom of God, Matthew highlights this idea that there's a new kingdom that's come up. Yet all the kingdoms of the earth will fade but the kingdom of heaven won't and, and his own special people. And special there doesn't mean like special in, in the term that it's, there's a, a difference that is lacking. Special there is a difference that is unique and beneficial and precious. It is more valuable than the things around it. You know, versus, you know, those are all my toys, but that's the special toy. Like it's broken in some way. It's not that term. That's my special toy and that's the one that stands out. We belong to God. God brought Israel out of Egypt. God brings the church out of nothingness. And in both cases, he creates a nation unto himself. One, an earthly nascent nation, Israel, which is still precious to God. But then there's another one, which is the spiritual kingdom of the church, which is still precious to God. So being called out from darkness into his marvelous light, what an honor. What has God done to call you out of that? Who are you to be called into that situation? Yet so many Christians in the face of that are like, yeah, but I still want to dabble with my sin. Why? What's so precious about your sin that you don't want to throw it away and run away from it as fast as you can? There's a clear and full expression of what the church is here. And I'll just highlight chosen, royal, priestly, holy, special. That's the church that you're a part of. Matter how It can be a family Bible study. It can be 14,000 people. That's the church that you're a part of. The people of God walking on this earth, going through our lives. What a precious thing. And here's the purpose of it. It's not just for you to be selfish, but it's so that you may proclaim the praises of him. That you may shout about what Christ is doing in your life and share it with everybody you come in contact with. The primary role of the church is to glorify God. It's the act of giving praise, verbal praise, sung praise, written praise, whatever kind of praise it is, that our lives are a testimony to what God's doing, not in hypocrisy and not with a deceitful tongue. We don't brag about things that aren't happening. And if they're not happening, we should be seeking holiness. So Peter's got this set up. And I think it's odd when we see people that try to mix up the order of what Peter says works. Because it did work. Him who called you out of darkness. And we know from the wedding story, we know from this other idea that there isn't a selectiveness in this. God's called everybody. And honestly, some people get really tripped up on that idea of predestination or you know whatnot. But I don't, in the scripture, it's he's called us out of darkness. He's invited us to come to the wedding where there's light. Weddings would often happen at night and they'd be lit up into his marvelous light. The most powerful evangelistic tool we have is to describe what we have that other people don't. If I want to make envy happen, I want that envy to be for the Lord God Almighty. If I, if there's malice in my life, I want it to be towards sin. There's a realignment of these things. I want to lay aside those things when it comes to sin, but when it comes to helping people come into the kingdom, I want them to be so... It should be so visible what they're walking into. This marvelous light. So if you're out in the dark, you're fumbling, you're guessing what's in front of you, got your hands out, like making sure you don't trip on things. When you come into a marvelous light, you can dance. There's a freedom in it. Verses 9 and 10. Why would anyone seek sin when there's this retreat of the church that's there? Verse 11. I'm going to close on these two verses. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, I beg you. Peter's like, please, I implore you. As sojourners, people who aren't there full time, pilgrims, people who have just arrived, abstain from the fleshly lusts which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they will observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Boy, there's a lot mixed up in that. First of all, beloved, uh, you know, when people tell us or implore us to do something differently, we don't often feel like that person loves us. So Peter just says it. I love you guys. It's out of love I say this. I want for you what I have. The target of love from Peter to the church is undeniable when he throws that word in there. Again, he points to our temporary residence. This world is short, sojourners and pilgrims, obscene from the fleshly lust. This is generalized. He doesn't point to a particular sin. I think in part because the Holy Spirit tells us what's sin. We know darn well what's good for us and what's not spiritually. Anything that pulls you from the desire of Jesus Christ is sin. It's very simple. And and Peter generalizes that fleshly lust. The things that you want in the flesh are not things that help you. And we know that they war against the soul. It's interesting because he doesn't get into like the physical pluses and benefits of certain things saying, no, it's your soul that matters. And I was learning from that. It's like, wow, so often we get caught into like the physical dialogue around these hot button issues. But you know what? It's all about the soul at the end of the day. Where's your heart? after you did that thing. So our attitude and our heart is actually a kind of war. It's a battle that we fight, a war against the soul. And again, this is language Peter likes to use. We're in a battle. And you don't go into a battleground without armor and without weapons. You don't go into a battleground, you know, backwards. You definitely don't go into a battleground when it's dark. You don't go on with a, in with a blindfold. Or you're going to get slapped around. So what do we lust after? We lust after the holiness and the milk of the word of God. And so at least, even with a blindfold on, at least hear the word of God, bare minimum. You can make excuses, you can have exemptions, you can skip stuff, but all of that is just the lusts, the things that you pine after. And I don't think lust here is just sexual lust. It's anything out there that your heart goes after. But even as your heart is in the middle of that, even as you are lost in sin, God calls you out of that. And the first thing he tells you to do is to at least come and be part of the church and hear the word. Having your conduct be honorable. And again, we're going back to that theme of conduct. God is good, so therefore we want to be good people. Not awful people, right? At least be honorable. To be honorable, I think, is to do things that are not in our self-interest because they're the right thing to do. Being honest, being good. And he says when you're out among the Gentiles, what he means by that is not Gentile believers, but Gentile non-churchers. When you're out in the world with people that aren't believers, you should be above reproach. People shouldn't catch you stealing. People shouldn't catch you breaking the law. You know, that's one of those things where to live above reproach is actually part of how we honor a good and holy and pure God. So when they speak against you as evildoers, you know, Peter's, again, the topic of this book is that people are being persecuted. Christians were being called evil. Romans called them um, haters of men because the Christians wouldn't get on board with some of the things Romans wanted to promote. They wanted to promote sexual promiscuity. They wanted to promote murder in the gladiatorial combat rings, the entertainment. And Christians didn't participate in those things. So the Romans saw their lack of participation as, well, you just hate us. You don't worship our pagan gods, therefore you must hate our pagan gods. And the Christians are like, we just love what we have more. Right? And no, we don't think your pagan gods are all that. We think they're fake. (laughs) So we're going to speak without deceit. They're fake. And, well, you're just a hater of people. You don't agree with what we do. Well, by your good works, which they observe. Yeah, we're just going to go and feed the poor and visit prisoners. And we're just going to go and feed one another. And we're going to go and, like, give gifts and treat each other well. We're going to sing songs together. That's what we're going to do. And so they observe those things that we do, and there isn't really anything wrong in what we do, but then they accuse us or speak against us as evildoers. Why? Because Jesus is a stumbling stone to some. It bothers them that certain people are actually seeking holiness. Well, nobody can be perfect, yeah, okay, I'm still going to shoot for it. Like if I'm going to aim my bow at the target, I might not hit the bullseye, but I'm shooting at the bullseye, and that's what I want to do. So they can observe us trying for holiness, and that actually upsets people when you're trying for holiness sometimes. I'm seeking that but we want to glorify God. How can a false accusation glorify God? Because everybody in the room sees that it's a false accusation. They know it. So getting arrested for my evil works, that doesn't glorify God. That embarrasses the kingdom. But when I get arrested because of someone else's evil heart, that absolutely glorifies God because it shames the people that arrested me. You put, somebody, you put somebody in shackles that didn't do anything, it makes them into a martyr. They look better at the other end of it. We have a good example of that in the news feeds this week. You want to arrest somebody without having anything on the accusation? It just makes you look like a fool. And the whole world can see that. Early Christians were often brought before the courts with false accusations, and it really backfired. Rome actually went Christian under Constantine. And you can debate about if that was real Christianity to switching. But the idea is Christianity eventually won out over Rome. And it was these court false accusations that started to turn people's hearts. So you have to ask, why is such a nice person being threatened by our leadership? What did they possibly do that was so wrong? Well, they assembled from church when they were told not to. They didn't listen to us. Well, is that such a horrible thing? They didn't sing songs to uh, Saturn and Venus. Well, is that such a horrible thing? You know, you start to have to ask, why are our leaders so insecure that they have to go after Christians? These simple, nice, decent people. So why? And then here's the other thing. Some of those Christians got killed for their faith, including Peter. But everybody watching that happen has to ask, why is this person willing to die for Jesus? Why did... Why did 11 of the 12 disciples or 10 of the 12 disciples cuz Judas is not a case and John lives to old age but the other 10 disciples were all martyred. Why? Why would you die for Jesus? Why don't you just tell the emperor what they want to hear? Why go there? And what it does is it stands as a testimony that there's more to this earth than what our leaders tell us there is. There's more to this earth than what we see on a news feed. There's more to this planet than what we see on Instagram. And that becomes something that becomes vividly clear when somebody's willing to die for their faith. The persecutions of Rome actually ended because at one point the Roman leadership figured out that if they killed all the Christians, there wouldn't be any hospitals left and there wouldn't be any care for the poor. So they stopped killing Christians because they actually provided help for people. In the day of visitation, this returning of Jesus, a day of judgment, Isaiah 10. There's a day when Jesus is coming back, and Peter calls that the day of visitation. This is a thought for me that often helps me pursue holiness. Do I want Jesus to show up right now and catch me doing this? And that question, when honestly asked, with no hypocrisy and truthfulness, and you're going, "Mm, yeah, probably don't want to get caught doing this, because there is a real possibility Jesus could come back right during that moment. Do you want to be caught doing that, or do you want to be at the wedding feast? ready to go, like the, like the virgins with their oil lamps lit because they're waiting for their king to come back. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify in the day of visitation they're the ones that'll say, oh, God is God. Those people were right. And when that day of visitation comes, when God comes to visit them, they'll know what holy looks like, or at least people shooting for it. So we have be holy because God is holy. We have how to do holiness. We have that our inheritance is to be holy. We have that we are part of a holy house. Like think of the tools Peter's giving us. We have that we're in a holy battle against our own flesh and Peter begs us as his brothers and sisters to fight this fight for the honor of God and for the witness that we have for Jesus Christ. That's a lot of reasons to be holy. We should stop there because we got to just absorb those things for a week. So we ask not how can we be sinful or continue to do things that are empty and fruitless, but we ask how can we be more holy and there's no better easter message than that we don't just come in and say jesus is risen once a year we come in and say jesus is risen every day of our lives and it should change how we act and how we behave because of it so we celebrate those things let's pray dear lord and king we just thank you for your grace and your mercy we thank you that each step we take towards you you show us that it's the right step And Lord, I just pray for each person in this room. May we pursue holiness this week. May we do it because we love you and because you're holy. Lord, help us to not pine for the things of this world, but change our hearts, Lord, because we can't do it on our own. Make us pine for you. And Lord, as we consume the milk of your word, Lord, I pray that we learn to just desire more and more of you in our life. And Lord, at each step, at each place where each person's at in their growth, Lord, help us to just keep moving forward, to take our first baby steps and then to run and then to just grow up in the faith and to grow up in the abiding in you and in your word. Lord, teach us in all your ways. Lord, may your Holy Spirit move in our life in unmistakable ways. In Jesus' name, amen.